The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode of The Murder of My Family is brought to you by Madison Reed. Madison Reed has hair color that is gorgeous, salon quality, multidimensional, ammonia-free, and delivered to your door for less than $25. Visit madison-reed.com for 10% off plus free shipping on your first hair color kit with promo code FAMILY. That's code FAMILY. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Please, spread the word about that. There's a very good chance that somebody listening to this episode now, or someone you know, is the victim of domestic violence, and may not know where to turn. But there is hope. If you or someone you know needs help or support, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or go online to thehotline.org. Hey, you've reached Kirsten Braden in Haven. Leave a message and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. The voice you just heard was that of 30-year-old Kirsten Krasovic. Kirsten was a mother, a daughter, a friend, and unfortunately in 2015, she became a murder victim. Kirsten wasn't killed by a mysterious serial killer. She wasn't the victim of a random crime. She wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Kirsten's life came to an end in her home, the home she shared with her 31-year-old live-in boyfriend, Corey O'Neill Brewer. An intruder didn't break into the home and take Kirsten's life. Instead, the man she shared a bed with, who should have protected her, took Kirsten's life. Sadly, it's an all-too-common scenario, and approximately 80% of murder victims are murdered by somebody that they know. And nearly half of all female victims are killed by intimate partners. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, or NCADV, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in three women and one in four men have been victims of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner within their lifetime. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime. 72% of all murder-suicides involve an intimate partner. 
94% of the victims of these murder-suicides are female. These statistics are shocking, and although Kirsten's murder is included in these numbers, she was more than a statistic. Kirsten was born and raised in Carson City, Nevada, and had graduated from Carson High School as an honor student. She had been a cheerleader and played clarinet. She loved Disneyland. During her high school years, Kirsten had what might have been a crush on Corey Brewer, who was a fellow student. But after graduating, the two went their separate ways. After graduating, Kirsten had dreams of becoming a pharmacist and took a job as a nationally certified pharmacy technician. By 2012, Kirsten was most of all a proud and happy mother to her two young children. Like many moms, those kids were her life. A decade after graduating, Corey Brewer came back into Kirsten's life, and they started a relationship. The pair moved in together, but Kirsten and Corey Brewer had a rocky relationship at times. And unknown to Kirsten's family, Brewer had a violent criminal record. He had been convicted of false imprisonment and domestic battery against his ex-wife, as well as assault with a deadly weapon for placing a loaded gun into the mouth of a former girlfriend. It's unclear if Kirsten knew about Corey's criminal history, but if she did, she kept it a secret from her family. At some point, Corey abused Kirsten for the first time, and it wouldn't be the last. Over time, Kirsten's will was worn down by physical abuse and coercive control. By the time she died, her boyfriend had pretty much broken her and taken everything that she had. Along the way, Kirsten's family noticed changes. Small ones at first, but more noticeable as time went by. From changes in her personality to the way she looked, they sensed that Corey was a controlling man. But there were never any clear-cut instances where the family knew for sure that Kirsten was being abused. And like in many similar cases, Kirsten hid it from family and friends. In July of 2015, the suffering that Kirsten had endured for so long came to an end. At around 7 p.m. on July 5th, Reno, Nevada paramedics and police were summoned via 911 call to the 4000 block of Gardella Avenue to respond to the report of a possible death. Paramedics found Kirsten's lifeless and battered body and declared her dead at the scene. Police started what they called a suspicious death investigation. An autopsy would later be performed on Kirsten's body, and it was determined that she died from asphyxiation and blunt force trauma. Kirsten had suffered extensive injuries to her head, torso, and internal organs. Police immediately suspected Corey Brewer of being responsible for Kirsten's murder. When questioned, he told investigators that he had gone out for a motorcycle ride earlier in the day of the murder and that Kirsten was fine when he left. He then told them that when he came home early that evening, he had discovered Kirsten's body and then called his grandmother who rushed over to the home. When she saw Kirsten's body, she called 911. Police didn't believe Corey Brewer's story, and they kept pressure on him. Finally, he broke down and admitted that his motorcycle ride story was a fabrication, and that he and Kirsten had used methamphetamine the day of the murder, and that he didn't know exactly how Kirsten had died. Police still didn't believe Brewer, and arrested him on suspicion of murder, as well as firearm-related charges. Brewer went to trial for the murder of Kirsten Kresovec, and was found guilty of second-degree murder. In December of 2016, Brewer was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 10 years. You heard that right. 10 years for strangling Kirsten to death 
and for beating her so badly that she had internal injuries. Ten years for the same guy who was a convicted felon with a history of domestic violence, including false imprisonment and for placing a loaded firearm into the mouth of an ex-girlfriend. A young mother was brutally murdered by a weak and cowardly man who had a history of violence. And I use the term man loosely. And there's a chance that he could walk free in 10 years. I can't comprehend that possibility. And I don't have the words to expand on this prison sentence. Instead of me trying to find those words, who better than to speak on behalf of Kirsten than Kirsten's mother, Lori? Lori was kind enough to join me for a discussion about Kirsten's case and we had a powerful and important conversation about Kirsten and domestic violence. That conversation is next, after this word from our sponsor. The future of at-home hair color is here with Madison Reed, gorgeous, salon-quality hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had two options when it came to coloring their hair, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. Madison Reed is reinventing hair color with the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula made with ingredients you can feel good about. This weekend, my wife will be using Madison Reed to color her hair. And what does that mean for the kids and I? It means we don't have to put up with that harsh, yucky smell of traditional at-home hair color kits. So join the hundreds of thousands of busy women who have tried and loved this life-changing hair color hack. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And Madison Reed would like to honor the Murder in My Family listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code FAMILY. That's code FAMILY. Visit madison-reed.com today. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now back to the show. Hi, Lori, and welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here to discuss Kirsten's case with us. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. You and I have been you know, exchanging emails for a while now, and I wanted to get you on because your daughter's case is one that's important because of what it represents, and that's domestic violence. And I wanted to point out in this episode that Many murders, most murders, in fact, aren't committed by a random serial killer out in the middle of nowhere. They're, the murders are committed by people close to the victims, and that's that's true in, in this case. And I think, you know, because of the domestic violence, we need to remind people of that. And being that October is Domestic Violence Month, uh, this is a very important time to do that. 
Yeah, it is. It, it couldn't have been more perfect than for this to have come out for domestic violence awareness. Uh, I, I think that that's, that's needed. People need to be more aware that it's happening and education. I think people need to be more educated on exactly what domestic violence is. And so I work with a, a couple of different groups, actually, of advocates here in Carson City and in Reno. And for the entire month of October, we've got quite a lot of, of events planned, some fun and some somber, to try to raise awareness for this uh, domestic violence. And I think what we'll do is, as we move along in the episode, we'll come back to that and, and touch on that. And you can tell us about some of the the awesome things you're doing to try and, and help that situation. Um, oh, sure. I would love to do that. And in this case, your daughter, Kirsten, died at the hands of somebody that was close to her, and that was her own boyfriend. Yeah. It's... It's important to let people know that it's far more likely, as I said before, that your mom, wife, sister, daughter will be the murder victim through domestic violence. And I should clarify that it can happen to men, too. But, you know, quite often, unfortunately, it's, it's women that we see in this situation. What? Yep, the majority of them are, are women. So that's, yeah. that's just a fact. Yeah. And that's it's unfortunate. And I think that speaks volumes about the kind of people, the abusers that do this, that they pick on somebody that they think are weaker or they can do it to without any kind of repercussions or, uh, and I think that shows what kind of small person they actually are. It definitely is. It's a pattern. Uh, most abusers, by the time a woman is killed, this person has abused more than one woman. And they get off. They they don't get arrested, or they do, and they don't get prosecuted. Or in our case, uh, Kirsten wasn't the first. Actually, she was the third. And we didn't know about that until after she died. Uh, but he spent three years in prison for doing the exact same thing he did to her that he did to Kirsten. He did to his ex-wife, except for she didn't die. And so he spent three years in prison for that. And he was let out. The parole board said he's not a danger to society. And three years later, Kirsten was dead. So obviously, they, there's a mindset there where they know how to tell people what they need to hear so they can continue abusing. And I think you hit the nail right on the head. There's there seems to be a pattern. The kind of people that do these things, it's not an isolated incident. Um, so right. it, it happens and it forms a pattern and, and these kind of people will do it again. And I think we hear and see in so many cases that the women, uh, again, it's mostly women, but I don't want to leave men out because men can be victims too, but mostly women, they will stick by these, these people that do that to them. And they say, well, he'll change or it was an accident or he was drinking and and it seems like sometimes they they are stuck in that cycle. Was that the case for Kirsten, do you know? You know what? Yes, it was. That was absolutely the case for her. She uh she she's always been a fixer. She always thought that she could fix people. And if I just love him enough, it'll be okay. So that was that that was the case for her. 
she, but then it's not just her though. It's probably many abused women, women. They get in this, this cycle and they can't break free because you know what? The, the best thing that ever happened to me after Kirsten died was I made friends with his ex-wife. She contacted me on Facebook and we started talking and we became friends. And she explained to me like nobody else could how Kirsten got stuck in this cycle. She explained to me the type of person that this man was and how he kept her there. And that, that helped me tremendously to understand what Kirsten was going through, why she hadn't left earlier, why she didn't confide in her friends and family about what was going on. It was, it, it was huge for me to be able to talk to somebody that had been there. Um, but it's coercive control plays a huge part in, in what these women go through. They, the men control them completely. Uh, sometimes it's with food. Sometimes it's with their freedom. It's certainly with their money. Uh, by the time Kirsten died, she had nothing left in her name. We found out not even her car. He even took her car. And everything was in his name. She didn't have anything. So had she left, she would have left without anything. A lot of times he used her children against her. She has two children. She had two children. Uh, he would use them against her, threaten violence with them. Um, he, he had complete control over her in that way, and she was absolutely terrified to make a wrong step in any direction because she knew that he would hurt her again or that he would hurt her kids or us. The most, the most awful thing, she left him two weeks before he killed her. She left him and went to my dad's house. And one morning he was, and we didn't realize that because she had, it was late at night when she went to my dad's and we hadn't talked to her yet. And so the next morning we were looking out, it's about six o'clock in the morning and he's sitting outside of our house on his motorcycle taking pictures. And we had asked him to cut down a tree for us, so I just assumed that he was taking pictures of the tree, getting ready to come over and cut it down. And we found out later that he was texting Kirsten. He was taking pictures of our house and of us, saying, I'm outside your parents' house. If you don't come back, I'm going to kill your parents. And so she went back to him because she thought she was protecting us. But that's, that's the type of power that... that these men wield over these women. So he, and used, I just, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and, and, and that's, that's even more hurtful. And, and that took me a longer time to understand because, you know, it's like, Kristen, we're your parents. We can take care of ourselves. But she believed so much that, that he would hurt us, that she was willing to be hurt for us. That's, that's heartbreaking. So he put that fear in her that, slowly caused her to get under his influence to where he could control her with different threats and, and things like that. Right. Right. In addition to the, the beating she took over the years, again, we really didn't know. I, no, that's not fair. I knew that there was something wrong. Uh, you could tell by the change in her, in her personality, her looks, even everything about her changed in the way that she acted towards me and her dad. For the longest time, she lived right across the street from us. Her and her kids lived right across the street from us. Um, and then he came in and God, within a year, he had moved her to another town. And so 
and so we knew then that he was he was very controlling, although I didn't realize how abusive he was at the time. He would I would look at her every time she did come over, and, and I never saw bruises, but I could tell the change in her personality. Um, but it was again after she died. Once the kids found out that that he was in in jail and couldn't hurt them anymore, they started to talk, and that's how we found out about most of this stuff that went on. And that's still I, I you know I still don't even like to think about some of the things that they told us that they witnessed and that she went through, and she just never told anyone. And and you mentioned jail, and I, I want to bring this part up because this is the most one of the most awful parts of this case is is what happened sentence wise for what he did. Uh, and I just want to get this out of the way so I can say his name one time and not say it again because I, I just think it's he's it, despicable. Um, okay, thank you. Yeah, we never say his name. Yeah, and and just for the listeners, I'm going to say it one time here with you, and then we're not going to mention it again, but. Um, his name, of course, is Corey O'Neill Brewer. Um, I was angry when I, I read that he got life imprisonment with the chance of parole after only 10 years. Is that correct? That's correct. That so many people were angry. Once, once that hit social media, people were livid. I, there was, I think there was about three or four different articles, and there were hundreds of comments about, about his sentence. Um, and I took the time to answer every single one of them I could because it's 10 years. It's, it's, li- it's a life in prison, possibility of parole after 10 years. But after 10 years or, or seven or whatever is left now, we can go to his parole hearing as, as family members and make an impact statement and talk to the parole board and keep him from getting out. So that's, something that we'll do every 10 years or however many years when he comes up, we'll make a trip to the other side of the state to where he's at. And we'll tell the parole board, look, the last time you guys let him out, it took him three years before he killed somebody. Don't let him out again. And usually that has a big impact on the board. And if family members show up that way, they don't get parole. So we should be able to keep him in there for a long, long time. Yeah, so that yes. was one of the reasons why we were okay with the sentence. We we were fine with it because ideally just plain old life in prison would have been the best. But by taking this deal, we didn't have to go to court. We didn't have to sit through a trial and see the pictures of Kirsten. Um, we didn't, you know, the kids didn't have to testify or say anything. So this, yeah, it, 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 it was the best for us and for her children. And, and I, I read it twice because I just felt, you know, I, I read the details of, of what he did to to her. And, you know, he, he pummeled her. He suffocated her. She had internal damage. Mm-hmm. And, and I just wonder how – I just it, – it boggles my mind that somebody can, can – Possibly, you know, you're going to fight that, but possibly get out after 10 years after that. It just, it's scary. You know, there's there's people probably in prison for, for very minor charges related to marijuana or something that are looking at the same kind of time. It just, it, it's mind-boggling when I saw that what he, you know, the sentence he got. He did. Uh, yeah, we, uh, to make it worse, I'm sorry. 
she was she was beaten so badly that the the funeral director uh, begged us not to look at her before we had her cremated. He said he'd never done that in all of his years as being a funeral director. He's never asked a family to do that, but he he begged us just just don't look at her. Just just let us cremate her so you don't have to see it. That's how bad it was. So. Yeah, in the scheme of things, you're absolutely right. When you think about someone with a marijuana charge getting more time, in that perspective, it's it's awful. You know, though, again, that just goes to the way that our society views domestic violence. It's hard for prosecutors to prosecute a domestic violence case, and they don't really want to do it if they're not going to win. Worst case scenario would have been that we prosecuted and went for life in prison and he walked because that's always a possibility because in a case where someone is murdered and there were only two people there, there's only one person left to tell what happened. And the story that he told of what happened was, was horrible. He, uh, it, it was all her fault. She was, she was very high on methamphetamines. She all day long she just wouldn't stop smoking methamphetamines. Um, and then he left and he didn't know what happened to her and he doesn't remember anything else. And you know, and that's his story. And there's nobody to say it didn't happen. The uh, the coroner did tell us there's you know there's a word for it, Mike, and I'm sorry, but I can't remember what it is. But for uh, methamphetamine intoxication, like uh, for a DUI. It's a .08, and you're legally drunk. Well, there's a there's a, a cutoff point for methamphetamines as well, and the amount that was in her body was the equivalent of being 12 times over the amount of legal intoxication for alcohol. So .08 times 12. Imagine being that drunk. I don't even know if she was aware of anything that was going on around her. Uh, the coroner did say that there's no way a person can do that to themselves. That's, it's just, it's just not possible. It was like if you were drunk and passed out and you just kept drinking, it's, it's the same thing. Um, I do know that on two previous occasions, thanks to his ex-wife, he has uh, shot her up, his ex-wife, he shot her up twice with methamphetamines when she when she was once when she was unconscious after he beat her and then another time when she was trying to fight him when she was trying to leave him and you can say that as much as you want but if he says it didn't happen there's nobody to say this is what happened so we already you're starting at a disadvantage because you've got this person that's high on drugs and so it must have been her fault and this is a perception that you run into with domestic violence the victim ends up getting blamed a lot. It, and that's classic victim blaming or victim shaming. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we see a lot, unfortunately, in, in some of these cases. And that's, you know, it is. when survivors that don't wind up losing their lives go to court to testify, they find themselves on trial. You know, you know, right. why did, why did you have drugs or, why did you sleep with X amount of guys before him? I mean, there's so many different ways that victims can find themselves being blamed or shamed. And this is, uh, it's just too common. And, 
It is. It's, it, these cases are very hard to prosecute because of the public perception of domestic violence. I, that's, yeah, I, I'm sorry to say it, but it's the truth. Now, I think that they should still prosecute. You know, you, you can't let these people off, but we need a new education all around as far as this con- is concerned. The, uh, what, what I keep thinking of is when I was in high school, this was in the early, late 70s, early 80s. I had a friend, and her father used to beat her quite badly and quite often. And she would come to school with bruises all over her body, on her face. And one time she had two black eyes, and one teacher pulled her out of class and asked her if she was okay and what was going on. But nothing ever happened after that. Was That was the only time anybody showed her that they saw what was happening. Now, that would never happen today, ever. The first time a kid came to school with a black eye, immediately people would be called and they would be talked to. And so it's just a matter of letting everybody know this is not okay. We have to do something. If you see something, you say something. This is against the law with domestic violence as well as like we had done with with child abuse. And from a legal standpoint, I just want to touch on on one thing again. Do you know why it was a second-degree murder versus a first-degree murder? It was uh, a plea. Let's see. First degree is premeditated, right? Yeah. You can't prove premeditation. You can't prove intent. You can't prove any of that. Again, there were two people and one is dead. So the one left gets to tell the story. Yeah. And it's, you mentioned, you say story. That's, That's a good term for it because even if he was defending himself, he could have, hit her once and, and left just to get away if, if that was his true story. But the, the beating that she had is just, that's not, that's not a defensive. Let me get away from you to protect myself. That's, I want to beat you to death. Um, and I just, it, it's it, still, it, it's, it's frustrating. It must be frustrating for you because it was frustrating for me just to read it. And I had to read it like three times to make sure I, I wasn't missing something. I just, I hope that's a law that can be changed someday and that some of these crimes will find a way to, to prosecute them with stiffer sentences. Right. right. Exactly. And it can be done and it should be done. It's uh, She's a serial abuser and it's all well documented in the court cases. But what we found is that nothing that he had done prior to this could be brought up in court because it wasn't fair to him because that's what he did before. And it was just, that was just something we were constantly knocking our heads against. Why? He did exactly the same thing before he's done this. We have documents. Why, if we go to trial, can't the jury see this? And we finally ended up hiring a lawyer. You know, the the district attorneys are so busy, and they answer as many questions as they can for you um, in the little bit of time that they have. And we just, we felt like we weren't, we didn't understand the justice system. So we went out and hired a lawyer to talk to us, to sit down with us for an hour and talk to us and explain to us why, why does this work this way? And um, it, basically that's it. You can't bring up any priors because that's not fair to him. 
all you can judge him on is what you're looking at here. This is all you've got. This is the evidence you've got. And this is all you can judge him on. And so I happened to ask the lawyer, I said, well, what about sexual predators? Why can you bring up their past? And he said, because they're on a list. We have a sexual offenders list. And because that list is public, then it can be brought up in court. And so that made me think, well, we need a list then for serial uh, domestic abusers, obviously, because people are falling through the cracks. Had a jury been able to see what he had done before any of his priors, then it would have been a slam dunk. They would have realized, oh, this wasn't just a one-time thing that this man, I hesitate to use that word, but that this man did. They would have realized that there was a pattern there. So it's, it's, our justice system is, is geared towards making sure that guilty people don't get put in prison. And I understand that and I agree with it, but at times like this, it's very frustrating as well. Especially when you're the family member of the victim, you know, it's, if I'm mad about it and I didn't know your daughter, you must be just beside yourself. And I, I, you know, I can't even put myself in your shoes to know how that feels, but um, you know, it just, it, I hope that's something that can be changed and maybe through some of your efforts and, and other people like you, uh, you can make some of those changes. We have to keep trying you, and you have to keep talking about it. The conversation has to be started and, and you can't stop until it's looked at as the crime that it is. Yeah. And, and, and people, you know, they need to accept that when this happens one time, it's not just one time. There's, there's a series of events like this in, in these abusers past most of the time. And most of the time that needs to be taken into, into consideration because you, like you hit the nail on the head, it's a leopard can't change its spots. And, and somebody that would do this to one person and then another is bound to do it again. If, if they're given the opportunity Yes. And that is the long and short of it. That, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. It's never just a one-off thing. And, and let me ask you something as a parent. As a parent, you know, we, we want the best for our kids. We want them to meet people that are going to be good for them and, and kind to them and protecting of them. Uh, did you have, looking back now, did you, have any kind of feelings as a parent that something was off? Do you regret not acting on something or, or not asking a question here and there to, to try and get more information? Do you ever feel that you may have missed something that might have might have helped stop this? I I failed her so badly. In in hindsight, I, I can see it all now. It was um I uh gosh. About three or four months after after she died, I I stumbled across Laura Richards and I started listening to her and the things that she said about domestic violence and coercive control and gaslighting, and it it, 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 it made so much sense. Then all of a sudden, I understood. I I didn't know what was happening. I, I didn't know what to say to her, but oh, absolutely. Looking back on it now, I would have spent less time being hurt um, by 
some of the things that she had said or done and more time realizing this isn't Kirsten. Uh, this is not something that she would do what's going on and more time talking to her in a different way than I did rather than just, just being upset with her because she didn't make it for uh, my dad's birthday dinner. You know, why didn't she make it, you know, and maybe, maybe understanding that he was controlling her and this is her way of maybe not getting beat again by saying, oh, yeah, you don't want to go to my grandpa's birthday party, then we won't go. I, I did everything wrong. I did absolutely everything wrong. And I think that's another reason why I speak out so much is that it wasn't intentional. I was just uneducated. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now you've, you've had to become educated after the fact and try and help help other people from going through this. Right. And and you mentioned Laura Richards. Have you reached out to her? Yeah, actually, I talked to Laura quite a lot. Um, I reached out to her the, in the very beginning. Well, no, at, right after the sentencing. The, the judge in this case was phenomenal. Um, she... After the sentencing was over and he left, there was, God, the courtroom was packed, about a hundred or so people in there and everyone wore purple for domestic violence. And she asked everyone in purple to please stay behind after him and his family and they had all left. And she said, uh, something to be effective. I would, it's good to see you all here supporting domestic violence, but don't let this end here in this courtroom. If you really believe in, what you're here today representing, take it out of the courtroom. Go and do something about it. It's something that needs to be addressed. And I think at that point, that's when I first reached out to Laura Richards, and I told her what the judge had said. And uh, she's, she's fantastic. She emailed me back, and we've been talking quite a lot. In fact, I'm trying to get some her to come here to Nevada to do some training with our law enforcement um, and anybody, anybody who works with domestic violence victims should should listen to Laura Richards because she's so smart and she understands so well what's going on. So I've I've met her and worked with her a little bit, and she is fantastic to have in your corner. Uh, you know, she and for listeners out there, in case they don't know who she is, she's an expert in the area of stalking and abuse, um, and she's fantastic. So. For her to be on your team, you know, that's got to only help you. Um, oh, it helps. It helps 
so much. She explains so much to me. And she, she talks to me, and I told her pretty much what I told you about how bad I feel about how everything went. And she takes the time to talk to me and, you know, talk me through it and let me know it's okay and let's move forward and let's change this. So I adore and, her. Yeah. And and let's and let's shift to something positive. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of the efforts that you are you know, are putting in to try and change the narrative in, in these kind of cases. What steps are you taking and 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 trying to put through to to change uh whether it's abuse from happening in the first place or uh tougher sentencing after something happens? Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts and, and what you've got planned to, to try and change it? My efforts are are focused solely on education. I think that education is crucial. Anyone who works with domestic violence victims should be educated in coercive control, stalking, domestic violence, anything like that to make you understand what you're dealing with. You um, usually say you're a police officer and you get a call to go to a domestic violence situation. You get one chance with the victim. You get one chance to ask the right question. And if you don't ask the right question, she'll close off from you. Immediately, you become the enemy. You don't believe her. Uh, you're you're ridiculing her, you're making fun of her, whatever it is she's telling herself so that she doesn't open up to you, then you've lost her completely. At that point, she won't press charges, she won't say anything else. But if you can walk in there with a list of the right questions and how to ask them, then you can gain her trust. And once you gain her trust, everything else is so much easier. Uh, all of this is entailed, uh, Laura Richards, again, of course, she has, it's called the Dash, Dash, excuse me, Dash Risk Checklist. And she spent years honing these questions so that you can assess when you walk in, what is the risk to the woman who's here right now? How much of a risk is her partner that's there with her? And then you have a better chance of acting accordingly. Um, Right now, a lot of places, all they do is hand the woman the phone number for the nearest domestic violence hotline or shelter, and then they walk out, and she's left there with the man that she just called the police on. Next time, she's not going to call the police because they didn't help, and then the next time, she might be dead. So it's, it's education from the very beginning is what I'm working on. Prevention through education. So I'm trying to get everybody on board to bring Laura here to Nevada to not only educate on the DASH checklist, but also on coercive control, which plays such a huge part in all of it, and stalking. We need to update our stalking laws. They're, They're antiquated. They don't involve anything to do with social media, texting, any of that stuff. So that's that's what I'm working on for long term. And is this something that you think you can change locally in your area, or do you think this can have a broader reach, you know, across the United States? I think it it has to start locally. Um, Nevada is number two in the nation for domestic violence murders. And if we can do this, if we can start in our little area of Nevada, 
and it's successful, and let's say it moves down into Las Vegas, which is huge, and we can implement it there, and it's successful, all of a sudden, Nevada's not number two anymore. They're number eight or nine. Other states are going to start looking at that and say, what did they do? And I think that's how we make it more of a national thing. By setting an example for, for others to follow. Right. That's, yeah, that's my goal right now. <laughs> yeah, start with my own little area of the United States and let's get it started. And then let's see how it rolls from there. Well, that that's how it starts, too. You know, you take a step and then somebody else sees what you're doing and then they do it and then it spreads and, and hopefully there's some change that's affected by that. That's my hope. And, and I want to I want to touch back on a couple things um, regarding Kirsten. Uh, you, you mentioned she had children and that's another, they're victims as well now, too. And that's sometimes in these cases that gets overlooked, but they lost their mother. How is their situation right now? They are better. Um, there was some counsel- quite a bit of counseling in the beginning. Um, she, he, he was not their father. Their father lives in Arizona, and he, he just wasn't in a place to, to take the kids. They don't really know him that well. And like I said, for the longest time, they lived right across the street from us, so they grew up with us. And they, they know us very well. We were their second home. So it was, it was natural for them to come here where they felt comfortable, where they felt safe, finally. A lot of, a lot of counseling. The, the boy is older. Um, he took most of the abuse as well and saw most of the abuse. So he's been a little bit tougher. Uh, the girl was seven when, she, when her mom died. So she was a little bit younger. She had a little bit easier time with it. But it's been, um, it's, it's been tough, but they're doing all right. They're getting better every day. And hopefully there's no long-term, you know, hopefully they can recover from it. But even if they recover from the abuse that they witnessed and, and that they know about, it's, it's not going to bring back their, their mom. Um, mom, so no. that, that, that's a life changing event for them going forward. So he, you know, he touched multiple lives by, by doing that to your daughter. Um, and that's, that's something that's important not to forget that. Um, there's always a ripple effect. Domestic exactly. abuse has a, a huge ripple effect. Well, one thing I want to do to sort of close out is, is rather than talk about the negative and, and how, Kirsten's life ended. Tell us a little bit about your good memories of her and and who she was as a, as a person. <laughs> She's, you know, she was a sweetheart. She, she honestly was the nicest, kindest person that that you would ever meet. She, um, after again, after she died, that the first words out of anybody's mouth about her was that she was the nicest, kindest person you've ever met. Had a smile for everybody. If you needed anything, she was always there for you, and she just she just radiated. She radiated light. She, I mean, I have to laugh because you know, I have to say that stuff too because I'm her mom. But I think as her mom, I could also tell you she had a, a wicked raunchy sense of humor. Just at times she would post things on Facebook, 
dirty jokes. And I would be having heart palpitations getting to the phone in time to tell her, take that down. Your grandparents can see this. And she would just laugh at me. She didn't care. <laughs> you know, she thought it was funny and she would laugh. And I, I did. I think she, she gave me about a million heart attacks. She, she was a lot of fun. <laughs> she, she, could, she could be stubborn. And I think what I always think of the most is I think every family has something. When you do something wrong, there's the name thing. Like in, in our family, it's the three names, first, middle, last. If you do something inappropriate or, or that I think you shouldn't have said, you know, it's first, middle, and last name. And so she would get the biggest kick out of when her dad, if he would say something and I would turn around and give him his, his three names, she would put one hand over her stomach and the other hand would be pointing at her dad. And she had this blast, this, this, uh, like a chortle type thing. Do you remember, it reminded me of, gosh, way back in, I think it was the late sixties, Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Oh yeah. They had, they had this, it was called Wacky Races and there was this dog and his name was Muttley. Look it up. If you don't remember it, look up that laugh. She would do that and she would laugh at her dad in this raspy chortle of a laugh. And I would just, I, it would crack me up. <laughs> She was a lot of fun. She, she, she was fun. She, well, I, I hope that those are the memories that you hold on to, and and not the bad memories of of what happened at the end of her life, but the her life itself. Uh, and you know, I, I hope that's something that you can do, and and not dwell on on the other stuff. It's you know what, Mike. It's getting there. You laugh more at stuff like that than you cry. As each day goes, you know, you, you laugh more. Probably in the beginning I would have cried thinking about that silly, muttly dog. But now I laugh. So, and they say laughter's laugh. the best medicine, and, and hopefully that's true. Hopefully that, you know, a little laughing here and there will, will help to ease what you've gone through. Yeah, it does. It does help. And... As we close out, I just want to say there's a good chance statistically that somebody out there listening is going through some kind of abuse, uh, domestic abuse, or their loved one is going through domestic abuse. What advice would you share with them, you know, based on your experience, if there's somebody out there listening to you right now that, that needs help or doesn't know what to do? I would, if you're, boy, there's, there's actually a few different things that that's okay. Uh, believe it or not, some women don't, don't really understand that they're being abused because it doesn't start off physical. It starts off more mental. So if you think that maybe something is wrong in your relationship, I would go online and I would go look up the Laura Richards and the dash, dash risk checklist. I don't know why that's so hard to say. And just take it for yourself. Look at the questions and answer yes or no for yourself. And that'll give you a good idea of if your relationship is going to become abusive. Because that's, you know, if you can get out before it gets that bad, if, if the warning signs are there, but you're not sure, this could help you make the decision. Or take it with a friend, have a friend give you the questions to, to talk about that's good as well. Then, of course, if you're already in that situation, there's the domestic, National Domestic Violence Hotline. 
um, it is, I'll give you the number, 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. If you're thinking about leaving a relationship, please call these people before you do. You need a plan in, in order to get out safely, and they can help you. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this during all of this, but Kirsten was leaving him that weekend when he killed her. She, she had The kids were up at Lake Tahoe with my dad, and she decided to leave while the kids were gone, thank God, because we're sure he would have killed the children, too, if they had been there. But she didn't have a plan. She didn't call anyone for help. So if anyone's thinking of leaving, call, call the domestic violence hotline first. They'll put you in, in touch with somebody in your area that can help you. And uh, I promise they won't be judgmental. They'll understand what you're going through, and it's okay to call. And the one that I can talk about most would probably be to other parents who have a daughter going through this. Um, learn about learn about coercive control. Try not to be hurt because what she's doing is not a reflection of you or your relationship. It's a reflection of what she's going through. And the best way to, to help is just to be loving to her even when she's not loving to you and, and be there. And in the end, hopefully she'll call you for help. You know, if, if you don't let her push you away when she's trying to or being forced to, then maybe in the end she'll call you for help and, and you'll have a different outcome than me. But it, 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 takes, it takes a big education to realize exactly what's going on. It's so much different than, than what you think. And that's, that's really good advice. And if anybody out there is going through this situation, please take advantage of those, of those phone numbers. Please call somebody. Um, there is help out there for you. That's one message I wanted to get across in this Definitely. episode. And, and I appreciate you helping me get that message across, Lori. They, they, yeah, they, there is help. And it's hard. You, you, you're asking someone to, to share their, their, really their worst secret and their best kept secret and not be judged for it. And it's hard for these women. So I think it, it is important to know that these organizations, they won't judge you, you know, and they'll help you and, and it'll be okay. And that's, that's the perfect part of this episode to, to wrap up and on a positive message. You, unfortunately, it can't change what you've been through, but hopefully we can change it for somebody else out there if they're, if they're listening to this and they're in the same situation. That would be my greatest hope. And Lori, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I mean, it's it's an important topic of conversation. It's one that we all need to be part of in some way and help spread that message. And I appreciate you coming on to help do that and uh, talk about Kirsten's case. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. 
If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder in my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Jamie Rice, who happens to host the awesome true crime podcast, Murderish. And thanks to all the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going. Your support is appreciated and helps the show grow and improve. As we wrap up this episode, be sure to check out previews for two true crime podcasts that I enjoy, and I think you will too. The first is Southern Fried True Crime, and the second is Swindled. Until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fraud True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime. And like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format, kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. Over 40 years, Hooker Chemical Corporation dumped over 80 toxic substances at Love Connect. There is substantial medical opinion that continued use of the Dalcon Shield may pose a serious personal health hazard. Oh, I hate He's accused of orchestrating the largest lotto scam ever. In opening arguments, prosecutor Jerry Miller portrayed Baker as a greedy, money-hungry showman who practiced fraud disguised as religion. Martin Shkreli has become the most hated man in America. My kid's not here. He's dead. He gets him hit. He ruined my life. Swindled is a podcast that uses narrative storytelling, archival audio, and immersive soundscapes to explore true cases of white-collar crime and corporate greed. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. For more information about the show, visit our website at swindledpodcasts.com. You love podcasts. The stories, the laughs, the unexpected turns. But when this episode ends, the silence starts. Not anymore. Audiobooks.com turns that silence into your next great adventure. With over 450,000 titles, from bestsellers to hidden gems, your love for listening just found its new best friend. And because you already know the joy of audio, we're giving you three free audiobooks to start your journey. Imagine your favorite podcast, now with unlimited episodes. That's audiobooks.com. Keep the story going. Sign up for your free trial at audiobooks.com slash podcast free today. Because for podcast lovers like you, the end of an episode is just the beginning. That's audiobooks.com slash podcast F-R-E-E.